pastor. Um, I don't dislike them because you can't dislike preaching. I love preaching. I love preaching the gospel. Um, but Christmas and Easter pose significant challenges for, um, for a pastor because you go to the same passages each year. Um, and you don't want to say the same things because the, the, the Bible and the gospel, um, as I think it was um, Gregory the Great said, uh, is as shallow enough for a baby to play in and deep enough for an elephant to swim. There is a more modern parallel, a Dr. Seuss quality to, um, to the Bible and to the gospel that every time you read it, you kind of pick up things that you didn't pick up the time that you read it before. But it's also incumbent on a pastor I'm not just to come to times like this and just be cute. Um, I'm not just trying to find some obscure thing because I preached all the important things. Um, really want you to be impressed with this, one of the most important doctrines of the Bible, the incarnation, the coming of God in flesh as a man, perfect Savior and Messiah. And so there are some challenges. So my goal when we come into an Advent or an Easter series is I really hope to take the true, basic, unadorned, rich and robust gospel of Jesus and kind of jog you with it a little bit. So I, I hope that you go through and you look at it in ways that you haven't looked at it before, but it is the normal, regular gospel and not just me you know, looking at some cute thing. And that's one of the reasons that we don't do a lot of the trappings of Christmas. We don't have all the different everythings and a whole host of different liturgical things because I don't want to obscure um, the gospel of Jesus. So all of that given um, as a disclaimer on the front end, this year what we're going to look at is we hope to look at what God says about Christmas or what God says about the incarnation of his son Jesus. And yes, God speaks in all of the scripture. The Bible is God's word to us um, without error, true in every part. And so whether we're in Isaiah 9 or Matthew 1, it is what God says about Christmas. But I'm being a little bit more specific than that. There are times where God impresses the importance of what he is saying. And one of the ways he does that is by sending angels. And so as we look through the Christmas story and as we sing some of the Christmas carols, you hear angels pop up. And remember, we're not thinking about um, chubby cherubs on the side of Kleenex boxes. Um, angels were warriors of light. Um, whenever they appear, um, people tremble, fall to the ground in fear. I mean, it's like an MMA guy showing up with like 10 feet tall and so bright he makes when it close, like you just kind of fall down, like I'm in deep trouble right now, is how angels are. Um, and one of the things that's lost on how we even speak about the creation of the world is we don't usually talk about God creating angels when he created the world. And so um, if you read the Westminster Longer Catechism, most people don't get past the shorter catechism. When you get to the longer catechism and it talks about creation and God creating all things, it says in the beginning that God created in the space of seven days the tangible world, the created world, and he created the spirit world. And so angels are created beings that are not material. They are immaterial created beings that God created to serve him. And in space and time, some of those angels rebelled against God. Um, they, were, um, they, they, they were not prone to, they were not the objects of redemption. And so the demons that rebelled against God um, that are malevolent, um, malevolent angels are not going to be redeemed. But humans that have rebelled with God 
are have a chance of being redeemed through what God does through Jesus. So we have this spirit world, and God sends his messengers, angels, in space and time when he really wants to draw us at people's attention to something. And you see angels pop up a lot in some of these first. So for the first four sermons, the only four sermons of Advent, we're going to look at these angels and how they appear and what they say and what we can learn about what God wants us to know about Christmas. And so we're going to look at Gabriel talking to Zechariah and to Mary. We're going to look at the angel who's unnamed, um, maybe Gabriel, um, talking to Joseph and then the host of angels um, talking to the shepherds. And so that's how we'll work our way through um, this series and again, what I, what I hope that you'll see is this is what God is saying about the Christmas story. This is what God thinks. Because how he speaks and how he reveals who he is says what he thinks about it. There's a lot of forethought to it. You know, so, for example, you know, a week and a half ago, President-elect Trump met with President Obama. Um, and I have a pretty educated guess that President Obama didn't call up Trump and say, Hey, yeah, with you and Melania are just cruising around town, you know, just swing by sometime and, you know, we'll, we'll grab a bite to eat or something like that. I have a feeling that's not how the planning went down. I have a feeling that there were people upon people upon people who were needed even just to get the two of them connected by phone. And then the plan that happened to get them together, how they even entered the White House, what it looked like for them to be together, what people were able to take pictures, what pictures were taken, what angle they were taken from, what seats they were sitting in, who shook whose hand when, and what was discussed. I bet all of that was planned. Now, if that is just two earthly sinful guys trying to figure out how to do head of state stuff, how much more does our sovereign God have intentionality in how he communicates the gospel and what we can figure out about the Christmas story in how he communicates the gospel? And so this morning, we're asking that question, has the how and the what of what God says through angel Gabriel to Zechariah tell us about the incarnation, the coming of Jesus um, into the world? And so if you want to turn your Bibles to Luke 1, that's where we will be this morning throughout this series. We'll hop around a little bit um, from Luke to Matthew and back to um, Luke as we look at the different appearings of these angels. And so um, this is the word of our God from Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, <clears throat> there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right hand, right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. 
And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Because this is the word of our God. Let's pray this morning before we consider it. Father, we are thankful for this word. We need your Holy Spirit, Lord, to help us to understand it. We know that when your Holy Spirit works through your word, no one leaves unchanged. Either our hearts are hardened or they are softened. We pray this morning, Lord, for softening. Father, we would see Christ. Help us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we go through this, again, remember, God could have revealed Jesus any way he wanted. He didn't need Zechariah. He could have done an angelic um, air show and just written in the sky. He could have sent everybody an email in their inbox. And errant and without mistake, everybody gets the same thing. This is what I'm going to do. But what we see here in God's choice in how he would reveal the coming of Jesus and the one who would announce the coming of Jesus, Zechariah's son John, is that God wanted to use the life of Zechariah. He wanted us to know that the unwavering, true revelation of himself, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his coming into the world to do battle with sin has a place within the normal, within the disappointment of everyday life, even within the sin and unbelief of everyday life. And so what we see in this story is God's true, amazing revelation colliding with Zechariah's life and the very ordinariness of Zechariah's life. And so we work our way through just to describe this scene, some of the normalness of it. This is how Israel worked. This is how the priestly system worked. What would happen would be there were probably, by our estimates, about 18,000 priests who served over the course of a year at the temple. And they were broken up into divisions of about 750. And each division had two weeks per year where it was their week of service at the temple. Within that week of service, out of that 750... 700 of those priests would tend to the things that the temple needed. 50 of those priests would have a focus on the sacrifices that went on morning and evening over the course of that week. And as was decided, out of those 50, a lot was taken. Um, We might say Rochambeau, they shot for it, you know, pop, rock, paper, scissors to decide who was going to do it. Only they had um, the Urim and the Thurim, these dice that they would throw to figure it out. And so out of those 50 priests, 
out of the 750, out of the 18,000, one would be chosen morning and evening to offer the incense during the sacrifice. And he would go in alone and he would give the incense. And they could only do it once in their lifetime. And so after they were chosen, they, they were out of, the, out of the rock, paper, scissors for the rest of their life. And so it says that Zechariah, um, who's a good guy, he's, he's a holy and blameless guy. It doesn't mean that he was sinless at all. It just means that he was a good Christian guy. He did his best to follow the Lord. And when he sinned, he looked to God in the sacrificial system for his mercy. He was just a godly, mature Christian married to a godly, mature Christian wife in Elizabeth, who was the same way. They, they had a little bit of, um, of ethnic pride, we might say. Both of them were of priestly lines. It says that Elizabeth was of um, Aaron's line, too. You know, it was kind of looking at like two good families and kids married each other. Uh, there was also disappointment in their life. And they were barren and, and didn't have any children, and now we're kind of grandparent age. Um, no offense to any of you who are grandparent age amongst you, but... We just have normal, godly folks doing their vocational duty. It's a little bit out of the ordinary in the fact, out of that 18,000, it was his 750. Out of the 750, he was the 50. Out of the 50, during the evening sacrifice, he was the one that was chosen by Lot to go in and to offer the sacrifice there before um, the temple. And so it's a little bit out of the ordinary that would happen, but that would be kind of his big day. It would be hope of what you'd wanted to do. I know for some of you, it's like jury duty. Like you see that come, and you just really want to serve in jury duty, and you know it only happens every once in a while, and you know, here comes jury duty. I get to be on jury duty. And of course, this is uh, much more important than that, giving sacrifices to the temple, but there was something about it that was unique, that didn't happen, that we would have looked forward to, that Zechariah was able to do. But again, it was, it was normal. It happened morning and evening. It happened all year long. People were praying outside. They did this normal thing, even in the unordinariness of the very, very normal and the ordinary. And so in the course of all of this, Zechariah walks into the temple and he starts to do his thing. And in the midst of the normal, God enters in through Gabriel, one of his angelic messengers, the kind of big angelic messenger as they go, appears at the right hand of the altar. Remember, right hand is this, the place of blessing and favor. And so Zechariah is not so sure blessing and favor and is still terrified that the angel's there and he falls down terrified, which is why usually the first thing the angels have to say whenever they show up is, don't be afraid. And if they don't start with that, then people don't listen. You know, think, well, I'm, I'm about to be struck dead. So they start with, do not be afraid. Now they've got that out of the way. You can hear what I'm going to say. And this Gabriel starts to give a message of a son that will come to John. But the first thing I want you to see is that God chose to enter into the very normalness of everyday life. And he wanted the normalness of Zechariah and Elizabeth's life to be the setting of the diamond of the revelation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that some of you get caught during the humdrum of your own life and you wonder, does God care about my normal life, my normal vocation, the things that I'm going through, the ordinariness of where I am? 
if he didn't care about ordinariness of people's lives, the normalness, it wouldn't show up so often as the setting and location of God doing his great work. It's one of the reasons that we love and advocate for a Christian view of calling. It's one of the things that was revived during the Protestant Reformation. I don't have, as a pastor, any more direct line to God than you do. I don't have a red phone in my study at home. There isn't an extra chapter in the Bible that tells me all the secret stuff that I know as a pastor. Pastors are not any more holy than anyone else. All of us do our ordinary vocation. And you may have a vocation that people think is high and important, and you may have a vocation that is don't people think. Or maybe you don't even think that you do very important things. But understand that the gospel message, God's announcement of how he would come into the world, starts with just an ordinary Christian doing ordinary Christian things in an ordinary Christian marriage with an ordinary Christian gal. God wants you to know that his gospel, amazing, unique, nothing like it, is perfectly congruous to normal, ordinary life. You don't have to go out and do radical, great things. You don't have to go out and be a missionary in order to really serve God. You can change diapers and wipe noses and push paper and do a two-hour commute. You can do all of those things, and it doesn't revoke or knock you out of what God is up to to honor and glorify his son Jesus wherever you are. This is part of God's love for the ordinariness of life in the course of what Zechariah was going through. And so one of the things God wants you to know about the Christmas story is that it syncs with ordinary. You know, part of the difficulty in the Christmas season is we do so many things that are out of the ordinary. You know, we do wreaths and trees and parties and these and that and this and this and everything's so out of the ordinary that we get to January and we think that God has left us and now we get into the unimportant months until we get to Easter again. See, there was nothing extraordinary about what was happening that day except for the fact that God wanted and chose to use the ordinary normalness of Zechariah's life to reveal the gospel and chose to use his boy, John the Baptist, to be the one to foretell the coming of Jesus. So that's the first thing. It was a normal life. We also see, which accords with normal life, John the Baptist, I mean John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth also had disappointment in their life. And you see it in here. They were barren. They had not been able to have children. And if you've ever gone through things like miscarriage or if you were not able to have children, it, it's never something that doesn't cause pain. It is, it is always difficult. And Elizabeth and Zechariah had walked that life and now thought that the sun had set on their ability to have children. But there was hurt and disappointment in their life. They, they had thought that they could have children. And then over the course of their life, they, they couldn't. And God, over the course of the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, picks things like barrenness and things like we'll see in two weeks, virginity, to bring his promises to bear through the having of children. Because what God wants us to know is when our disappointment says, 
promises will never come true, this has revoked the plans of God for us, God can still work, and God can still move, and God can still bring life where there wasn't. It doesn't mean if you can't have children, that if you trust in God enough, you can have children. What it does mean is that God uses that as an illustration to show, I am the God who brings life. And he enters into Zechariah and Elizabeth's painful story to reveal that. And you hear him say that. And so the, the angel starts, Gabriel, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now, we think maybe he was in there praying for a son when he was doing his normal temple work. That's a possibility. Um, what we know that he had to have been praying for was actually the salvation of Israel. Um, during the evening sacrifices, a part of the liturgy of Israel is that Zechariah would have been praying for Israel to be redeemed and built up and strengthened. And it's, it's thought that that is the prayer that he's answering. And the angel could have stopped with that. The angel could have said, all right, listen, I'm going to answer your prayer. We're going to redeem Israel. It's going to be great. This Messiah is going to come. But he enters into the pain of Zechariah and Elizabeth's life, and he says, my promises are going to come about, and in the course of answering the prayer for the redemption of Israel, you are going to have a child, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And he goes on to describe what John will do, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so God uses the disappointment, the pain, the unfulfilled hopes and dreams of Elijah. I mean, Elijah. Zechariah, I'm getting my prophets mixed up, Zechariah and Elizabeth to help bring about his revelation. He wanted the story of John the Baptist and Jesus to be told against the backdrop of barrenness. That's what he chose to do. He could have chose any other way, but he wanted to tell of the promises of Jesus into the disappointments and pain of his people. And so again, and the same way, we tend to think that ordinary life does not connect to the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ. We tend to think that our areas of pain and disappointment, our hopes that are, no, that are not fulfilled, are kind of God-free zones, are roped-off areas of yellow tape. God's working over here where I see blessing, but where I know pain and disappointment and discouragement, God's not working there. And God chooses in the way that he reveals who Jesus is and how he's going to come, and this boy John the Baptist, and all that John's going to do, he reveals that he is willing to, that he wants to, in the gospel, enter into our areas of pain and disappointment. So where for you, the areas that you have roped God off, you have prayed too long for whatever to happen or not happen, and you've just given up that God wants to work in that area of your life. The gospel story speaks into that. And it doesn't mean that there's going to be prosperity. It's some kind of like name it and claim it. Uh, the boy that Zechariah had is going to grow up 
to be gruesomely killed, like Al-Qaeda gruesomely killed. Like it is not all peaches and rainbows and steak dinners for John the Baptist. It is still difficult and hard, but we see God in telling about the coming of Jesus, the incarnation Christmas, it is entering into the pain. Christianity is not a spiritual epidural. Even though we treat our celebration of Christmas that way. With enough coffee, alcohol, and credit, we can forget about our problems until January. We just party our way through Christmas time and being around our family and doing all the stuff, and then all of a sudden we get into January in the dark months. We are very prone to use holidays not to engage with our difficulties and our struggles and our pain, but to try and forget about them in whatever way that we can, which is why it's always hard during times it sends that they tend to, to blow up and you know, family discord and all kinds of things that happen during holidays that you think all of a sudden the holiday's ruined because you know, pain and discord and relational stuff happens. The, the fact of the matter is God enters into that stuff because it's a normal part of life. And you see him doing that here in the gospel story, entering into that. But thirdly, we see that Zechariah, as a godly man, blameless before God, still had sin, and particularly the sin of unbelief. And um, honestly, the sin kind of like of being a little self-centered, and so, um, which all of us struggle with. Um, and so the angel says, this great John the Baptist is going to come. He quotes Malachi. He says, he's, your son's going to be the Elijah to come, like the greatest prophet ever. Like, you answered your prayer for the redemption of Israel. Um, I am the angel Gabriel. Like, all of these different things are happening. And Zechariah says, okay, um, the extent of, I don't believe you, give me proof. And Gabriel disciplines Zechariah graciously. He starts by saying, Okay, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of Almighty God. It was Gabriel's way of saying, Thus saith the Lord. You already have enough proof. It is not always good parenting to say, Because I said so, but at times it really is. Because God doesn't have to give reasons, He doesn't have to give signs. God speaks, and we do it because it's God. I mean, Zechariah would have known Daniel, and if he had known Daniel in the book of Daniel, he would have known that this angel has already occurred in biblical history during some pretty important times. And so Gabriel is saying the revelation of God is proof enough to trust God. It doesn't have to make it winsome, doesn't have to explain it out. If God says it's going to be true, it's going to be true. And where we doubt and are unwilling to submit to the word of God and all of its authority, and thus saith the Lord, there is the sin of unbelief, and God in his graciousness disciplines his people, just like a loving dad does. And so if you refuse to walk in the ways of the Lord, if you say, well, yeah, that's what your word says, but I need more proof, God will graciously discipline you. And for Zechariah, the gracious discipline was that he was mute until the boy was born. And we know that he can write because he writes John's name at his birth. And so 
They didn't have like reams of paper. They didn't have printers or, you know, word processors. Uh, probably had wax tablets. And so I don't know if he was like explaining the whole thing, one wax tablet at a time to whoever else was willing to read and, you know, explaining to Elizabeth, who now has a husband who can't talk, um, what's going on and, and why it's happened. But God graciously, graciously grew Zechariah by challenging his sin with the word of God so that through this experience, Zechariah grew through repentance. So again, the Christmas story is for normal, ordinary life. The Christmas story and the most important doctrines of Christianity are for areas of pain and disappointment in our lives. And the most important doctrines and God's revelation cares about our growth and holiness. God will see you grow. He will see sin challenged in, his li- in your life. And he will graciously invite you through his mercy to repent of sin and to trust in him more. Which I, I wasn't necessarily going to you know, read the next passage. But once, he is, um, once his, his, the boy is born, um, he says this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, talking to his son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his, way, prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the Son shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Was God gracious to Zechariah to grow in grace? Absolutely. He went from, how can this be, to praise be to the Lord God for his mercy and grace and the forgiveness of his sins. Is Christmas time a time of year that you look at where you do an inventory of your life and repent more? Is Christmas a time that you look over your life and ask God to help you diagnose sin and idolatry so that you can repent of it and trust in God and his ways? Because that's exactly what God chose to do when he revealed this message to Zechariah. Is that the way that you look at the Christmas story? Do you look at the incarnation as some dry and stuffy doctrine? Or is it something precious to you that fits into the grittiness of your life? The ordinariness of your life? The pain and disappointment of your life? The sin and areas that you need to grow in in your life? Because God, in the way he planned to reveal his son Jesus, was already doing those things. Not way on in the book of Romans when you're halfway through and you're realizing the glories of the doctrine of justification. Way back before Jesus was even conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, when God was dealing with Zechariah and telling him that John the Baptist would come fulfill biblical prophecy, God was already doing these things. Entering into the ordinary comforting disappointment people in the pain of their lives, challenging sin and calling people to repentance. 
Here's the goodness of our God and how he revealed the story. But you see, the tension so far of where we are is that we have still talked about it being all about us. And that's really the question about this passage. So far, I've talked to you about this passage being all about Zechariah and all about Elizabeth. And of course, it's, it's there in their story. But so far, I have not preached the primary message of Luke 1 or the Christian gospel or what's going on here in this passage. I've said biblically true things that maybe have encouraged you so far. And you should be encouraged at what God has decided to do and how he revealed through Gabriel the gospel message about the incarnation. But you see, the problem was it wasn't fundamentally about Zechariah and Elizabeth. It had to do with them and how it was delivered. Fundamentally about Jesus the Christ. And what God was doing as he was finally coming and revealing himself in such a way as to free his people from being consumed with their selves. You see, the, the biggest sin of unbelief is being consumed with yourself. Is that you, even people who are spiritually minded, they want to spiritually grow, they want to be spiritually better, they want to be a spiritual powerhouse, they want to be able to um, fight against all the spiritual things that they don't want like, they want spiritual prosperity, they want to talk to super spiritual an angels, they want to be really spiritual people, and they might take Christian language and put that on top of it, but that is not the Christian gospel. What God's revealing in Luke 1 is that finally he was going to reveal himself in a way that was going to so captivate his people that they would be freed from themselves. He was going to give his people a blessed self-forgetfulness. And the revelation of the one John the Baptist would point through, point to, and it's all the way through this. He's quoting Isaiah, he's quoting Malachi, he's quoting about Elijah and how John the Baptist is going to be greater than Elijah. He sent Gabriel, the angel from Daniel, and he's saying, finally, the Messiah is going to come and this Messiah is going to do this great work. And as you realize who God is and what God has done to help forget, to help um, provide for us forgiveness of sins, you finally can stop focusing on yourself so much and be captivated by the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the only way you can do that is if you trust God will take care of you. Again, Christianity is not a spiritual epidural. Christians are not people who forget about life's problems, who don't experience pain, who just stick their noses in the Bible and sing songs despite the fact that they're sad and don't want to sing at all. That is not Christianity. They are freed up to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ because they know that God knows those needs, knows their pain, knows their suffering, knows where they are, and that he will care for them as they focus on the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what's here in this passage. Does God enter into the very real life of Zechariah and Elizabeth? Yes. Are we given probably more detail than we need to know here? Yes. There's just a ton about their normal, everyday life, about their pains and struggles, about even Zechariah's sin. So is the gospel story about God coming to us as individuals? Yes. But it is primarily about Jesus the Christ. 
and us being captivated by him. And for some of you, you are jammed up in your Christian life because you think that God has come as your spiritual coach, as your spiritual psychologist, and he's here as your spiritual trainer to make you into the beefiest spiritual person that you want to become. He's not about that because he loves you. And he knows self-centeredness will destroy you. He has come to say, let me free you from you so that you can look at me. And we keep saying, but, 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 if, you, if I focus on Jesus, what about? If I focus on Jesus and I stay in my job or my lowly calling, whatever that is, or whatever I think about it, will you still care for me? If these promises don't come true in the midst of my pain, will you still be there? In the midst of this sin that I wish would end, are you still God? And God's saying, I've got that. Those are things that are woven into this story. You actually are free to be captivated by Jesus the Christ, to focus on him. One of the primary illustrations in the Old Testament is that God's people are changed as they see God. Actually, they are changed by whatever they look at. They are changed um, positively by looking at God. They're changed negatively by looking at idols, which is why God's so big about images. He says, if you stare at money all the time, you're going to start acting like cold, heartless, green paper. If you stare at sensuality and pleasure all the time, you are going to be empty and overstimulated and destroy your life. If you stare at your resume all the time, you are going to be an accomplished shell of a person. Don't stare at those things. Stare at me. And know that I can take care of you. Just keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on me. That's the invitation of Christmas. That's what God is doing in the midst of this. Very real, gritty life. Talking primarily about the glory of Jesus. And inviting you to find your purpose, your ultimate in Him. And it's especially needed during these weeks. Everything in these coming weeks, all of the advertising are trying to appeal to you. Your needs. Your happiness. Your, your, your. The perfect place setting. The perfect gift. The perfect gift to receive. The perfect gift to give. The perfect way to this. The perfect way to that. The perfect way to decorate. Or the perfect way to not do any of that and be smug in your non-celebration. You, 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 you says it's not about you it's about my son the lord jesus christ doesn't that sound like rest rest from commercialization rest from being all about me an invitation to be captivated by jesus and who he is and when god reveals himself that's what happens so if you're not a christian here this morning god invites you to repentance, which is saying, I don't want to look at the other things that cannot satisfy me and cannot save me. And faith, looking at God as the one who can satisfy and can save, who will rule and reign and lead you. If you are a Christian, this is an invitation for you during this period of time to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be captivated by him. And it will not get easier in the next six weeks. It will be more difficult. And so use Zechariah as an example. 
let God focus your eyes to Jesus on the story of the Lord Christ, the one who was born the perfect child, who lived the perfect life, who died the death that we deserved so that we could be made right with God and rose again from the grave to show that it was true. God's grace to Zechariah was secured by the son that Zechariah's son would point to. Jesus was Zechariah and Elizabeth's savior. And that's what made and changed Zechariah's life. So that's my encouragement to you as you go through here and hear through the angel what God thinks is most important. God thinks, I'm going to engage with real life because that's important, but I'm going to call you to focus on the primacy of my son, the Lord Jesus. And that's what Gabriel was about here in his message to Zechariah. You'll see the same thing next week as God enters into um, Joseph um, when it looks like he's entering into the pain of a guy who thinks that his fiance has cheated on him. So again, we just don't talk about those themes being a part of the Christmas story, but adultery is very much a part of the Christmas story. And God enters into that and chose that theme to be a part of how he wanted people to hear about Jesus. So you could read the first few chapters of Matthew if you want to. Do a little homework um, in advance and, um, and read those and see um, what you think about the Christmas story. I hope that you'll be challenged and encouraged and grow in the grace of God for you and that all of us would encourage each other. Hey, let's all put our eyes on Jesus. Take our eyes off ourselves. We've been free to do that. And we're the only people who can do that. Let's take God and his word and his invitation and say, we are Jesus people. We are going to be captivated and enthralled with him alone. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, we love you. We are grateful for this gospel, this good news revealed on every page, but especially through Gabriel. We know, Father, right now, Gabriel is at your throne. And right now, Gabriel's eyes are fixated on your son, the Lord Jesus, who is also at your throne. And so, Father, we would join in in the worship of heaven, fixing our eyes on our Savior, the Lord Jesus, the only one who can save. Even as we continue and finish worship now, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. We stand and respond in song.